Gene Healy, uh, my colleague, uh, before I got to, uh, to Cato, my friend, I actually took my daughters on their first, my twin daughters, my oldest, I took them on their first college visit. We went to Washington, D.C. to look at American GW in Georgetown. And we came to Cato, we had lunch with Ed Crane and Gene Healy. And my daughters told him a lot of stories, told Gene a lot of stories about all the indoctrination they were getting at school, at school. So after lunch, Gene gave them each a signed copy of his book, which I think then was pretty new, called The Cult of the Presidency. And he said, uh, this is his word, not mine. He said, I wish I had some ammunition like this to deal with my pinko teachers back when I was in school. So uh, thanks for arming my daughters, Gene. Gene's a vice president of Cato and uh, amongst many other responsibilities, runs our, our uh, civil liberties effort and criminal justice effort. So uh, very important area for us. But also uh, through his research on his book, which is outstanding and uh, received kudos from George Will in a column that, that uh, modestly hangs on the wall of Gene's office. Um, He's an expert on uh, executive power and uh, what he calls the cult of the presidency, the expectation we have that uh, we're going to elect someone who's going to wave a magic wand or exercise his great power and, and uh, solve all our problems. And uh, it seems like it never gets old. It's very relevant with each election cycle. So here to talk about the cult of the presidency in the context of the 2016 elections, our colleague Gene Healy. Thank you, Peter, and thank you all for being here, joining me in this half hour for the discussion of an extremely unpleasant topic. Uh, the presidency is, uh, is the gift that keeps giving, uh, and presidential elections keep coming back. Uh, I don't know about you, but personally, when you see these focus groups on television, they never leave me feeling inspired by the good sense and intelligence of my, uh, my fellow citizens. Uh, when uh, Joe and Jane Sixpack sit down with uh, Frank Luntz and uh, you listen to what they have to say about politics, you usually end up wondering how democracy has survived as long as it has. But there are exceptions, uh, like this focus group in Wisconsin last month where the participants described themselves as faced with a bleak choice between a liar and your drunk uncle caught between a candidate they loathe and one they fear. And fear and loathing on the campaign trail 2016 it captures it pretty well, I think. I don't care how devoted a Republican you may be, uh, the prospect of Donald Trump in charge of the world's most powerful mili military must leave you a little bit unsettled. I mean, we'd like to think that whoever the, uh, the person is that we entrust with that much power is going to be a cool customer, you know, somebody who can resist provocation when faced with the alleged foreign policy crisis of the month. But Donald Trump is a man who can't uh, laugh off uh, an insult from little Marco Rubio about the size of his hands and uh, other extremities. Uh, I guarantee you there's no problem, he reassured the country at one of the presidential debates, uh, the, the presidential primary debates, which strangely was not all that reassuring. 
As Hillary Clinton suggested in her acceptance speech, you know, a, a, a person that you can bait with a tweet is probably not someone we should trust with the nuclear launch codes. The idea there from Hillary is that she is going to bring, by contrast, a sober, calm, and mature attitude towards the vast powers of the presidency. You know, like this. <laughs> he died. <laughs> did it have anything to do with your visit? No, oh, I'm sure it did. That's, we came, we got that halfway through. We came, we saw he died when informed of uh, uh, Colonel Gaddafi's death. Now look, I don't have a ton of sympathy for the, the late Colonel Q. Uh, seemed like a pretty miserable fellow, uh, even if he died while being stabbed in a very uncomfortable place by a lynch mob. But given that Hillary's war turned Libya from a uh, run-of-the-mill basket case to a terrorist cesspool uh, that looks like something out of Mad Max, you might ask for a little bit more decorum from your then Secretary of State. Still, if you're wondering if she's bloodthirsty enough to be president, I guarantee you there's no problem. Look, the prospect of either of these monsters in the Oval Office should fill us all with fear and loathing. But if you focus on the horrors of one or the other, you're missing the point. Because what should really scare the hell out of all of us is the American presidency itself. It's become an office with far more power than it was ever intended to have, and more, powerful, more power than any one fallible human being should be entrusted with. Least of all, either of the two highly fallible people who are most likely to win it come November. To appreciate the monstrosity that the presidency has become, it helps to start with a look at the very different sort of institution it was designed to be. So I'm going to take the next few minutes to do just that, uh, to explore the founding generation's relatively modest conception of what the office was for. Uh, then we'll turn to the more, to the radically more expansive and powerful institution that threatens us today. The growth of executive power isn't a new thing in American history, of course, but it is rapidly reaching crisis proportions. It's becoming a loaded weapon pointed at the heart of America's free institutions. And so at the end, I will try to address what, if anything, we can do about that. I think uh, some of the phrases that you hear people use to refer to the, uh, like journalists, to refer to the uh, president in the presidential office today, our commander-in-chief, the CEO of America, uh, the most powerful office in the world, the leader of the free world. Well, in, in 1789, the presidency wasn't any of those things. The president wasn't even supposed to be America's leader. In the very first essay in the Federalist Papers, John Jay warns that throughout history, those who have destroyed republics began by flattering the people. And this theme, this distrust of demagoguery and populist leadership is a continuing theme in founding era political thought. Jefferson believed that even delivering the State of the Union address in person before Congress, he thought it looked too much like the king's 
speech from the throne, so he put a stop to that practice as president. Early presidents gave uh, surprisingly only a handful of public speeches a year, and 19th century presidential candidates were not supposed to go out on the stump and campaign for their own intellection, their own, uh, their own election. It was considered uh, distasteful to do that. The founding generation didn't believe in Teddy Roosevelt's bully pulpit. This very, the very idea of a president claiming a special mandate to speak for all the people and pounding the podium and rallying the masses behind his agenda is something that would have disgusted and horrified them. The president's role as they saw it was actually to, to resist popular passions, to, as Federalist 71 puts it, withstand these temporary delusions in order to give the people time for cool and sedate reflection. The president's job was to take care mainly that the laws were faithfully executed and to slap Congress back with the occasional veto whenever it overreached. Otherwise, he was mostly supposed to keep his mouth shut and keep his hands to himself. Now, when the Constitution was drafted, there were people rightly who, who uh, who worried that this would be sort of a king in embryo, the office of the, pro of the president, uh, 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 the fetus of monarchy, uh, Edmund Randolph called it at the Constitutional Convention. Well, Alexander Hamilton, it's not my favorite framer, but uh, that's what he, if you can see, that's what he looked like then, and that's what he, he looks like now on Broadway. Alexander Hamilton answered this charge pretty effectively in Federalist Number 69, where he goes through uh, a, like a line-by-line -line comparison with the powers and responsibilities of the British king as contrasted to the American president. And uh, he says the, the king can create offices and agencies. He's the arbiter of commerce throughout the realm. The president is none of those things. The king is the head of the national church. The president, Hamilton says, has, quote, no particle of spiritual jurisdiction. The king can start wars. The president can't. Uh, yes, Hamilton says, the, the president has the role of commander-in-chief, but that means nothing more than that he is the first general and admiral of U.S. military forces. And generals and admirals don't get to decide whether, when, and with whom we go to war. Only Congress has that power. That, of course, doesn't stop journalists and pundits today from referring to the president as our commander-in-chief, which he's not, unless we're all in the military. Our first president had a humbler title for the office he held. Most often, Washington referred to himself as the chief magistrate. There you see the, the Lansdowne portrait of, of Washington. It was painted in 1795 by Gilbert Stewart. He's the same guy who did the, the famous unfinished portrait. And it's done in the style of uh, 18th century portraits of, of royalty, but it's also meant to create a contrast with them. Uh, Washington's in, in not in regal robes. He's in a simple black suit. Uh, on the table, uh, can't see it here, but in a magnified, uh, high-def version, the books on the table are, uh, the, include the Federalist Papers and the Journal of Congress, which is sort of the congressional record of the day. That's to reflect the idea that the president's main job is taking care that the laws are faithfully executed. 
So that's the, that's the chief magistrate as the framers largely envisioned him, respectable, not regal, uh, law governed, not a law unto himself, uh, a person with, a, with an important job, sure, but somebody whose powers and responsibilities were limited. It's not the presidency we have today. Uh, the, the modern president is a different creature entirely. The differences are so vast you could write a book about them, the book that Peter mentioned, and uh, as you can see, I'm not above a little product placement. Uh, when, I, when we were talking about the cover design, I knew I wanted to use the presidential seal and I wanted it to look like a, a bunch of mesmerized uh, primitive tribesmen worshiping a sun god. The thing with the, the hands is kind of in a dramatic license. You know, people don't actually do that. Well, I, you know, there you go. Uh, the, the fact is we have a very different orientation toward the presidency today. We've, we've invested in the office with these uh, messianic longings and these quasi-religious aspirations. And as a result, the president keeps on generating new roles. He's the consoler in chief. That's the, he's expected to manifest his presence at a disaster area and, you know, shoot healing rays from his brow and hand out FEMA grants. Uh, he's the, the, the theologian in chief, even though Hamilton assured us he'd have no particle of spiritual jurisdiction. He's more than a theologian. He's sort of a god. You know, maybe uh, in, as in this Newsweek cover, uh, a six-armed Hindu deity juggling uh, Apache helicopters and housing policy and uh, monetary policy and the very globe itself. Uh, that's sort of where the president is today and what people look to the president for. He's responsible for all things great and small, the state of the national soul and the price of a tank of gas, uh, how much salt you can have in your diet, what your health insurance covers, which bathroom people are allowed to use, and uh, also freedom all around the world. And you may be tempted to think that this absurdly broad view of the presidential role is unique to President Obama, the man who promised to bend the arc of history and stop the ocean's rise. Uh, but it's, in fact, it's exactly how Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton interpret the job that they're applying for. Uh, Trump, granted, is a lot less lyrical than Obama about it. He just says, when I win, all bad things happening in the US will be rapidly reversed. Now, Hillary has, if anything, a more insanely totalistic view of what the president's job is. This is uh, from last week. She tweeted out, the choice in this election is about who will have the power to shape our children for the next four years of their lives. Which is a, a rotten thing to tell expectant parents. I mean, <laughs> they're already worried enough about the Zika virus, and, and now there's this. If you remember uh, your comic books, you, you may remember uh, 
with great power comes great responsibility. That's what Uncle Ben told Spider-Man. Well, it also works the other way around with the presidency. With great responsibility comes great power. Because if the president is expected to solve all the bad things happening in the United States and teach our children well, then anyone who's in that office is going to seek powers that, that, that live up to those sort of all-consuming responsibilities. And that is what's happened, uh, particularly over the last decade and a half. The most powerful office in the world has grown even more powerful, thanks in large part to two presidents in a row who've repeatedly pushed the limits of executive authority. Dick Cheney used to like to describe the mission of the Bush administration as leaving the presidency with more power than we found it. Mission accomplished. Uh, Bush began and Obama continued the host of secret dragnet surveillance programs that were revealed by Edward Snowden. On the home front, both presidents radically expanded presidential power over the economy. In his last month in office, for example, uh, President Bush unilaterally ordered a multi-billion dollar auto bailout just days after Congress had voted the authority for that bailout down. Obama, of course, brags, uh, I've got a pen and I've got a phone, and has governed by unilateral directive, ignored clear statutory deadlines, and lately has even invented a presidential power of the purse that allows him to, uh, in the service of Obamacare, spend billions of dollars that Congress has never appropriated. We're now over two years into President Obama's latest undeclared war in the Middle East. Congress never authorized the war against ISIS, but the administration has said like the larger war on terror, it's gonna go on for at least 10 or 20 years more. So in say 2028, when we're all filled with excitement over the impending presidential contest between Chelsea Clinton and Ivanka Trump, <laughs> we can rest assured that who, whoever wins will get her, own ver her very own drone fleet and presidential kill list. If it's any consolation, and it's not, uh, President Obama supposedly feels bad about all this. Uh, it's been reported that in conversations with his advisors discussing executive authority, he's been heard to worry about, quote, leaving a loaded weapon lying around. Well, he's sure done that because right now we have the two most widely reviled and distrusted major party candidates in the entire history of polling. It's House Trump versus House Clinton, and barring a miracle, come January, one of these two is going to inherit all the weapons of the radically enhanced presidency, the pen, the phone, and the drone. Winter is coming. And they're happy about it. Uh, uh, Hillary Clinton has said, I won't give up. I'll, I'll build on President Obama's executive actions and keep going. Donald Trump promises, I'm going to do a lot of right things with executive orders, like uh, turn the IRS and the uh, antitrust division of the Justice Department against his political critics and create a database tracking Muslim citizens and forcing Apple to make the iPhone in the United States. He's also actually pro promised to uh, force Nabisco to make Oreos in the United States because that'll make America great again, if anything will. 
Uh, you look at what's ahead, and it's easy to sink into dark humor and despair. This is really an obituary that ran in, uh, in May in the Richmond Times-Dispatch. First line. Faced with the prospect of voting for either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, Marianne Noland of Richmond chose instead to pass into the eternal love of God on Sunday, May 15, 2016, at the age of 68. But I say to you, do not go gently into that good night. <laughs> this is a problem we, the living, have to deal with. And, happily enough, it's actually a problem we can potentially do something about. The important thing to keep in mind is that Congress actually has all of the powers that it needs to begin de-imperializing the presidency. Despite what we all learned in Schoolhouse Rock, our government isn't one of co-equal branches. There's a reason that in the architecture of the federal city the Capitol Dome looms over the President's House. There's a reason that Congress's powers come first in Article I, and that those powers are, on paper at least, clearly superior to those of the President. It's because, as Madison put it, in Republican, small-r Republican government, the legislative authority necessarily predominates. Not, unfortunately, lately in big-r Republican government. When he was asked this summer uh, what he would do if Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton were to start governing without Congress, uh, Speaker Paul Ryan said that he, he'd consider suing any president who overreaches, which really has to keep them up at night. But if Congress has all the powers it needs to cut the presidency back down to its proper constitutional size, why haven't they used them? Well, we've given them really no incentive to do so, uh, and they need an incentive. Uh, Americans increasingly understand that we've got a problem with the concentration of executive power, and they're starting to understand, become capable of seeing past one election cycle and starting to understand that the problem goes beyond the particular person that happens to be in the Oval Office at any given time. But we still, even the best of us, remain such captives to the cult of the presidency that we think uh, instead of pressuring Congress, the solution is to, uh, we need to elect a better president. You know, we need the proverbial man or woman on the white horse. It's not going to happen. I mean, if you think about how we pick presidents, we start by excluding anyone who doesn't want the job badly enough to spend uh, two years of his or her life schlepping through Iowa and New Hampshire taking selfies. Uh, and then we're shocked when the person we end up with turns out to be a power-mad narcissist. <laughs> Nobody willing to do what it takes to be, uh, to be president is going to get there and say, you know what, now that I'm here, I'd like a lot less power. The man on the white horse is going to turn out to be Genghis Khan. And yet, it's possible that things have gotten so bad that we're reaching an inflection point, one of those what the president sometimes calls a teachable moment. The literature on cult deprogramming, which granted may not be the most rigorous of the social sciences, 
uh, talks about a breaking point, uh, a period in which the, uh, the authority figure's authority has been undermined and discredited, and that prisoners become open to rethinking their worldview. We might be getting there. Uh, George Will has suggested this. He wrote this summer that uh, Trump's nomination might have two salutary effects. It might counteract the cult of the presidency and might reacquaint Republicans with the reality principle, the need to assess and adapt to facts. And earlier this month, uh, Ross Douthat uh, suggested that a Hillary Clinton presidency might have a similar energizing effect. Because she's so transparently mercenary, so utterly charmless, uh, in a way she's like the liberal Nixon. And because of that doubt that suggests that a Clinton administration, quote, is more likely to have a demystifying effect on the presidential cult than to amplify it. Either scenario gives Congress additional incentive and certainly we the people additional incentive to pressure Congress into reclaiming some of the powers that they've ceded to the executive branch. That's the hopeful, happy story you can tell about the most uninspiring, terrifying, and cringe-inducing election in modern memory. It just might be the rock bottom we need to hit before we can admit to ourselves that we've got a problem. And will it happen? I don't know. Nobody knows. But what I do think is that conditions for it right now, paradoxically, are better for it than at any time since Watergate. Thank you. I think we have a, a few minutes for, for questions. Yes, sir. Hey. Is there no legal mechanism for challenging executive action, for example? For example, the uh, recent executive action on extending min uh, overtime pay to lower wage workers, can that be challenged by Congress or by anyone? It can be certainly be challenged by Congress, and uh, it can be challenged in the courts. The record of uh, court challenges to executive orders uh, is pretty poor, however. Uh, something like 4%, uh, I can only think of a handful of, of big ticket cases, uh, like the steel seizure case in the Truman era. There was a, an executive order uh, on striker replacement in the Bill Clinton presidency. Occasionally, you, you do see Congress, you do see the courts jump into a fight between the two branches and say that the president has gone beyond the limits of the powers that, that Congress has written into the statute. But it's not an ideal solution because the courts are very reluctant to get into these fights. I started to say, I think it's something like 4% of executive orders or something less than that over the last 40 years that have suffered any setback in court whatsoever. Uh, there, a lot of the problem happens on the front end, however. The reason the, the presidents are able to claim so much power is because Congress delegates so much power and often writes such vague, uh, airy statutory language that uh, there's a colorable claim for the president that he can exercise this authority. I mentioned briefly the uh, uh, auto bailout ordered by Bush. Uh, it was done under the TARP authority, uh, you know, which we all thought was uh, for toxic mortgage-backed securities. Um, 
But when you actually look at the, uh, at the, at the statutory language, the definition of what a financial institution is, is written so broadly, you know, it could be a car company, it could be you, it could be me. Uh, Congress has, by punting so much authority to the president, has created this problem for itself and for the rest of us, largely. And it is a shell game that people need to see past, and they do have all the power they need to start taking some of this, uh, the authority they've delegated back. Uh, yes, sir, and uh, over there. As a uh, partial, as a partial practical remedy for addressing to some degree this, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the cult of the presidency, I'm curious about your thoughts of voters actually advocating for divided government as a means to um, at least partially keep some controls on the, on the executive. Yeah, that's a, that's a, a very important observation, actually. Uh, divided government, is, divided government has occurred more recently, more, more frequently in recent decades. And it's almost as if people are starting to understand uh, that divided government makes uh, the, the separation of powers work better. Uh, you know, Madison had this idea that everybody in Congress would have an incentive to protect their, their own turf and Congress would sort of act as a unitary whole. Well, it doesn't really work that way. The, the presidents have every incentive to maximize their own authority, but individual legislators don't have that incentive. They just want to get reelected, and they rarely stand and fall on separation of powers issues. But when it does start to work better, and uh, the late Bill Niskanen, former chairman of the, the, the Cato Institute, he did some great work on this, uh, on the spending side and also on the, uh, you know, the civil liberties side, there, there's some work done on this. When you put uh, the legislative branch and the executive branch in different hands, which happens fairly often in midterm elections because the honeymoon's over and we realize, oh my God, what have we done? Uh, the opposition party tends to gain. And you do, separation of powers certainly doesn't work like it was intended to work, but it starts to work better. Unified government is a nightmare. You know, I, like probably like many of you, I, I thought for decades, uh, God, wouldn't it be terrific if uh, the Republicans had the House, the Senate, and uh, you know, and a majority on the court, we'd definitely get some limited government then. And we ran that experiment during the Bush years, and uh, we got the opposite in a horrifying way. Uh, so there, there really is a, a sense, and people have written about it, where, where Americans are starting to understand, even unconsciously, that putting the, the, uh, the legislative and executive in different hands gets you closer to where you want to be. Any more? Or? Sure. Hi, my name is Josh. Uh, I'm with the SFGOP. And my question was, um, South Dakota just passed a law saying that the police can use drones with non-lethal weapons. Um, how do we ensure checks and balances against an impending federalized police force? Uh, and how does that apply to the Second Amendment? Well, that's a lot there. Um, we actually have, uh, in, in, my, uh, in the policy group that, that, I, that I'm in charge of, 
we actually have a paper coming out uh, by an analyst uh, named Matthew Feeney, who also has a British accent, also sounds really smart, uh, about police use of drones. Uh, you are right to suggest, I think, that uh, when you, when you say uh, increasingly federalized police force, that a lot of this stuff is being driven by federal funding. Uh, the prolifer prolifer proliferation of security cameras, the tiny hamlets in Alaska that, you know, have one street light, uh, the uh, distribution of military-style weaponry uh, to local police departments. A lot of this, there, there are police departments that have bought drones with Homeland Security grants. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, one of the points the paper makes is that federal funding drives a lot of this. But also, you know, Congress and the federal government are not the only, uh, is not the only place where the action is. The, and it's, the courts are not necessarily going to sort this out either. You need to have a action in state legislatures that uh, does the opposite, that restricts some of these powers and the use of some of these technologies. That would be my... My take on that. Thank you all for, uh, for being here and for listening. <laughs>